0: Hi, everyone. Good Mayed. Uh Just wanted to get on the podcast before this episode to uh, say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, this episode is about uh, the Sassoon family. Uh, I'm going to do something a little bit lighter for Chalamoyed. It's a very interesting uh, history of the family, whether you've heard of them or haven't heard of them. The book uh, referenced, you know, under discussion in this episode is a very nice read. Uh, So covers a decent amount of time, more modern history, uh, but it's a good read if you're interested. Uh, Additionally, when we recorded this episode, we made reference to the Sassoon Codex, which went for sale. It was kind of in the news, the uh, the famous Codex Tanakh. And that, I don't think we, we, I think it was, it wasn't sold yet. So it's as far as I remember, so it did sell for $38 a little bit more than $38 million, and it was donated to a museum in Israel, so to just to, as a postscript to this episode. Uh, additionally, uh, just some programming notes, because this is kind of Chalmoyed, it's kind of in between. So uh, I don't think there'll be a Spain series episode this week. Chalmoyed, people are busy, this is just one episode, you can listen to it if you want, listen to some old episodes if you haven't gotten to them. Um, and then going forward, I'm not sure if there'll be a Spain episode next week um, or just a regular one because it's kind of like Monday, right after etc. et cetera. But we'll see. Um, but going forward, there will be Spain episodes. There's uh, I think there's four more now. There might end up being one more part of the series. I don't anticipate making it bigger. I may have related. There Not may have. There will be related Spain episodes released down the line. But maybe now everyone like Spained out. I don't know. So uh, but we'll see. Um, but after that, I do envision at some point, um, pretty soon after, continuing on with the series kind of theme and starting the new series, the Ten Lost Tribes and Jewish Consciousness uh, on the Asara Shvatim. I think it's a pretty fascinating series. Uh, of course, I'm the one putting put it together, but I think it's a lot of fun, really exciting. Um, there is a fascinating cast of characters. Uh, I mean the characters on discussion, not the guests. Great guests. It should be you should really enjoy it. Um so stay tuned for that. And I probably covered it, but if you have ideas, I really am taking ideas on that. I know in Spain I said it, but this one I'm not finished recording. I have a couple episodes still. Um so to record. So I'm so if you have ideas for that, email me. Svaramchedter at gmail.com. But more than ideas of a topic. Ideas of a topic and a guest. It has to be a potential guest. Just a topic. I'm not. It's not really going to help. So, if you have an idea of a topic and a potential guest for that series, please email me because I'm working on that. Additionally, uh, I'm working on a and and that episode that series. Uh, will, you know, I should say already here. You know, if anyone who knows, listens to the podcast know that C series and the Spain series are generously sponsored by Glock Plumbing, uh, very good friend of the podca- podcast and sponsor, and they'll also, rich them be sponsoring the. Asaras Tribe series. Um, there's also I'm also planning on doing a mini series on the Chida. I did an episode on the Chida, the famous uh, Shadar, and uh, you know really, who lived in the 18th century and died in the early 19th century in Italy, and then now he's at Harmanuchas, was moved there. It's famous, author of countless foreign, bibliographer, historian, Talmud I scholar, in mean, everything. Uh, so. We I did an episode with Maishi Maimon on the Magotive, which is the Chida's diary, and that went over really well. The stats were terrific, I got great feedback on that. And then we really only focused on the first part of it. So, the the idea is to do a series on the Chida, uh, an episode on She his famous bibliographic work, kind of a lot of history and bibliography in there. Also, on his life, just his full biography of is about like his diary, but in his full life. Um, also, his other works, famously, is And Shasi also has He has. I, endless farm on, 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 Agadita, I got it, uh, and others. He has farm he has droshes I and he has endless, endless farm. So we'll do maybe an episode on this farm and then maybe another episode on this Magal part two. Um, we'll see if you have other ideas about that, email me. And if you'd like to sponsor that series, email me as well as farm chatter at gmail.com. Um, and then there's other potential mini series, um, that I'm working on now. Um, so that's kind of programming note going forward. I don't know. Figured now's the good time. Good time as any. Additionally, if anyone would like to sponsor an episode, a couple, a good bunch, I'd say of the forthcoming, you know, coming, the episodes coming soon have been sponsored already. And I think those sponsors that have sponsored them, but if you would like to sponsor one, you can. So email me, svaramchatter at gmail.com. Also, there's a, you can, or you can just use a link uh, in the show's notes via PayPal, or you can use Zell Chase Quickbase, at gmail.com. And additionally, you can just give any amount. If you just want to help support the podcast monetarily, um, I appreciate it in any amount, $18, $25, $36, $50, whatever it is. Uh, some people gave recently before Kipper. And so if you want to do so, I do appreciate that. Again, there's a link via PayPal, or you could do, uh, swarmchat gmail.com that's sell or chase quickway or you can just email me so and of course if you can please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen apple podcasts or spotify or 24 6 and if you use apple if you can rate and review and sorry for the long-winded intro i just wanted to fill the listeners in with the you know future goings on on the podcast and uh, have a good night and good jump tiff Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of this Farm Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Joseph Sassoon, who is the director of the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies and a professor of history and political economy at Georgetown University. And we will be discussing the Sassoon family, the great and kind of famous Sassoon family. um, And uh, Professor Sassoon wrote a book about them titled The Sassoons, The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire. So uh, thank you, Professor Sassoon, for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: So I was born in, in Baghdad and grew up there, but um, the conditions for the Jewish community began to deteriorate after 67. And in fact, uh, Jews were not allowed to leave the country. By the early 1970s, not only were not allowed to leave the country, but you were not allowed to leave the city you were living in. So it was really doubly uh, difficult to get out of the country. Uh, But we managed in in the early 1970s to escape from uh, via northern Iraq to uh, Iran, um, you know, which was quite fortunate. And quite a number of Jews left at the time in the early 70s.
0: So... You know, interestingly, this, this book is on the Sassoon family, and we'll we'll talk about them. Uh, you know, for me, I told you before I started recording, I was familiar with them, with Solomon Solomon Sassoon, with the Sassoon family, of a part of the family that owned many manuscripts and published many sfarim. Actually, I think one of them learned with Rav Dessler during the, the World War II. So that's the one that I was familiar with. But this was a family with a, uh, you know, very big empire, as we'll get into, a very massive business. But... How did you become interested in this? Because, you know, as I read your title there, listeners may be familiar, this is not your expertise. You don't generally write on uh, Jewish history, right? You are absolutely
1: correct. I actually was working in uh, Oxford University uh, during a fellowship on a book about authoritarianism in the Arab world. And um, out of the blue, I received a letter from someone also called Joseph Sassoon, who uh, lived In Western Scotland, and saw an article of mine about uh, the events in uh, the Middle East. And he wanted to ask me whether we are related. And one thing led to another. I uh, spoke to him, and he started telling me about the family. Um, And then I got a little bit interested, and I went to the archives in London. And then that summer, I, while in England, I took advantage and went to Western Scotland to see him. And that really kind was the first spark of uh, interest in the sense that, you know, he was showing me pictures of the weddings of his grandmother in St. Petersburg, uh, other pictures of the family. And I have to say, I got, you know, my interest will speak. Um, And then I saw something um, about the National Library in Jerusalem having some material. I emailed the archivist and um, sure enough, I got a very detailed answer. Yes, that they have archives and I'm most welcome to come and visit them. And I thought since London is just a few hours, uh, I flew there for thinking it's just two, three days, and the minute I uh, looked at the amount of material they have, tens and tens of thousands of all the family correspondents uh, was there. And the vast majority of them were in uh, the Baghdadi Jewish dialect, which is really a combination of three languages. It's the Baghdadi dialect, it's in Arabic, but written in Hebrew letters and there are also words in it in per, from persia and and the ottoman um but i realized why it has not been used and i realized that this is a great story to be told because i didn't want to just interview a few people and put few pictures the minute i saw this vast treasure uh, they have all the 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 trade book the 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 trading logs um, they have endless correspondence, diaries, uh, everything you can think of. I realize there is a story to be told.
0: So let's start off at the beginning of their story. And uh, they're from Baghdad as well. What time period are we talking about at the beginning? And who's the kind of beginning of the family? Wherever the, well, early- the
1: beginning of the family, I mean... Look, the the Baghdadi Jews in in Babylonia go back to 2,500 years to the Babylonian captivity. Um, And there was Jews in Babylonia for hundreds and hundreds of years before that. All we know is that the father of the founder, um, which we are talking now at the end of uh, the 18th century, um, was um, appointed by the Ottoman uh, emperor as the tax collector. Each, each province in, in the Ottoman Empire, think about it in the U.S. like a state. It has its governor and it has its its tax machine or financial machine. And the tax collector, for all practical purposes, was like the minister of finance, but there were governors that were also appointed, and he was the what is called saraf bashi, the tax collector, for uh, almost a quarter of a century, which meant huge power, a huge influence, both in the province but also uh, in Constantinople, and uh, but governors went and changed. Unfortunately, in 1829, a corrupt governor uh, uh came and started hassling all uh, uh wealthy families um and merchant families uh, uh such as the Sassoons. The Sassoon, by the way, as I said, we're not in the merchant business. Um so the his oldest son David was arrested. He you and he had to, the father had to pay a ransom. To release him, and then he realized once he was released that this governor is really not a good person. And by the way, he was doing it with all religions and sects, it was not. Um, and so he, he and his son fled Baghdad in 1829 and got to the southern Persia, which is now Iran. Uh, father died, and David Sassoon took his young family um, and uh, made the decision to go to Bombay. And by the way, all the siblings of David stayed behind, and I'm the descendant of one of those siblings.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, you are related uh, to the family. at uh, hand. I, I want to continue with the family, but once you said you're related, I want to ask you, did you know about the Sassoons, the one that we're going to talk about, the family? Did you know I mean, about They the used
1: to, They used to talk about it. Um, my mother used to tease my father about it. Um, but whenever my father wanted to tell me, I really had zero interest in facts. I tell in the book, at, at age 11, I would put my fingers in my ears and run away to irritate him. And it always did the trick. But no, I mean I knew that it was a big family, important family, but I had no clue that we're really talking about an empire. I thought at the time it was just a couple of people who were successful as merchants.
0: Okay, so let's go back to the family. You see, David he runs away, gets to Bombay, Mumbai, in India. Do we know why he goes there? And and to talk-
1: very- yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, and
0: I just want to, and just, we should also speak a little bit more about David himself and what, you know, what, what his story was like, you know, what you already mentioned back and what he, you know, cause he's the, yeah. so, the father of the empire.
1: So, um, a number of things. One, it is really, there were a lot of other merchants, Jews and non-Jews who left Baghdad and went either to Gulf countries, for example, Baghdadi Jews moved to Bahrain, um, at the time, some went to parts of iran um it seems he has met a number of british officials and 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 seamen who told him you know in bombay they don't care about religion or sect and there are a lot of opportunities and if you go there they will never hassle you um and that really attracted him plus he thought it's it's a big country with a lot of um a lot of opportunities. So he was married in Baghdad. Um, his wife uh, gave birth to four children. Um She died very young, most likely after the birth of the fourth child. so he he had two sons and two daughters. A year later, he married, still in Baghdad, and then the new wife obviously left with him and the children to Bombay and there she gave birth to 10 children who survived so in total he had 14 children and you know he was very religious he um really knew the talmud he would uh, study the 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 torah and and, and it's interesting not only with jewish people but he had a session with one of the missionaries where he would sit and discuss the Talmud. Now he didn't know English, um, or uh, and and the other guy didn't know Hebrew or Arabic, but they communicated in the old biblical and some Hindustani that he learned.
0: Interesting, and that's a key point that he was really a devoutly religious person, uh, David. He was. Yeah, and we'll get to he built. they still standing. He built uh, many schools in uh, in uh, Bombay and other parts of India as well. Yes. Okay, so what was his? I guess well, how, how, let's start with with the with the business with the empire. As you said, the family although they were rich, they were important already in Baghdad. They were tax collectors. They weren't merchants. So merchants was a new thing for David. How did he become start off in there, and how did he gradually build up the uh, the empire, so to speak?
1: So that's really one of the fascinating aspects because he really didn't know anything about trading but obviously was a very astute learner. He would go every day to different exchanges like the cotton um see what is happening. It's very interesting. Um he, there wasn't a single event that made him you know successful he built everything step by step. Um, one of the things that is really piqued my interest that while he was at the cotton exchange every day talking to traders, and, and by the way, Bombay at the time had a lot of entrepreneurs, both foreign like European, but also Indians, and he would uh, uh, learn from them what's happening. He decided to enter the cotton market because he noticed that uh, when there was a bad harvest in America, prices went up worldwide. And he thought, okay, that means there are opportunities. And really, from that point of view, point on his emphasis on international news became very, very critical. Um, Later on with the cotton, of course, the american civil war changed everything cotton prices quadrupled but here is another interesting thing um he sent his son one of his sons a few years before the war to london uh because he believed that this is now the financial center of the world it was the largest empire and 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 the most uh, important superpower and Having the sun during the American Civil War near the British uh, uh, authorities, near the U, uh, British uh, news agencies, gave them an edge.
0: So that really helped them, like you say, when it came to cotton and when they came to the American economy because of the Civil War. Right. Now, kind of the, the biggest part of the family's uh, trade really was opium. Um, how did they get into that? If you want to, well, I guess if let's also describe basics of opium and the opium trade and how in China for listeners who may not be familiar with that as well.
1: Sure. So in 1830, now first of all, opium uh, uh, exports and trade has been going on for hundreds of years, long before David Sassoon arrived in in India. The East India Company, which controlled um, India for uh, 200 years or more. Was uh, had a, um, a monopoly on the trade, but in 1839, uh, there was the first Opium War where Britain fought against China to force it to open its uh, ports to international and foreign traders, but also to allow uh, opium trading as opium became a legal commodity. There was a second war in uh, later on, uh, ten years later, where France and even the U.S. were partly involved, forcing China to be totally open to foreigners and legalize completely by 1857 the opium trade. Um, I, I think you're right. I think listeners, you know, react uh, uh, differently to the word opium but it has to be put in context. One is opium has been known in China and India for 5,000 years. Even today, uh, peasant women would use it when their babies are teething. Um, Second, it's important to know that opium was a legal commodity until 1909, and you could go to any pharmacy in New York or London or Paris and ask the pharmacist um, for a, a cure for your headache or your uh, stomach, and the pharmacist will uh, uh, advise you to take, give you some opium. It was the most valuable commodity that was traded for 25 years, and it was quoted every day in the financial papers no different from gold and silver. And basically, opium trade continued, in essence, until uh, World War I.
0: And, right, so as you say, opium is a drug, it comes from a flower, and this was a, uh, a, a big trade. Now, although it had been going on for a while, how did the Sassoons, especially David, get involved in this very lucrative trade?
1: I mean, it started, he was, if you look at the archives, he was really nowhere compared to other Indian or British traders. But as time by, one of the things with his uh, sons and sons-in-law, he created an incredible network around. He sent his second son, Elias, to China, who spent there for five years. Exploring, uh, creating contacts with traders, with agents. And again, slowly but surely, step by step, he built contact. The trading was not just opium, there were a lot of other commodities. There was rice, there was wheat, um, there were pearls, um, uh, there was sometimes gold. Um, and um, also, they went into the shipping business. Maritime insurance. But by the way, they were never in the banking uh, uh, sector at all, or never in the money lending business.
0: Yeah, as you, I think you mentioned this a couple of times in the book, this kind of the uh, like anti Semitic trope, like Jews are lending money and money lending. That was, that had nothing to do with their business. They were merchants.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, you mentioned something there that's uh, very interesting, and that you you know really discuss a lot in the book, which is how they opened up a l- many branches, and that really was a big part, a key part of the family's success from David and after his death to Abdullah. We'll get to him because, as you say, I mean, they was in England, they were in India, and while well, they were in China, so they, they were they were uh, they multi- were Hong Kong eventually, right? They were in multiple locations. So, can you speak a little bit more about how did that really play into the success of? Uh, The the company, the the empire.
1: So there are two things which are not different from anything in any good business today. Um, That is information and network. And by uh, David establishing a network of his family, but also of trusted agents and counterparts, he also began to obtain incredible information. I mean, the business was relatively sophisticated. I'll give you one example. They started trading silk. China has silk. But sometimes, suddenly, they hear from one of the brothers or one of the sons that um, the harvest of silk in Italy is really bad. So they immediately started buying because they thought prices will go up. So there was almost these arbitrage opportunities which are based on, again, network uh, and, and information. And and they were really very, very good in establishing this. They also, you know, part of the tradition, of the Arab tradition being an Arab Jew, is hospitality. They knew how to create these contacts with officials, British, Indian, and um, even with the Prince of Wales, they became very close even before they moved to England, uh, after his visit to India,
0: yeah, and 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 we'll get more into you say the Princeton and politics, but another thing about that that about the different branches is is that you is this I was going to say it's unique, but I'm going to ask you if it was unique that each branch kind of operated independently. So what what did what does that mean, and what did that kind of do? For the business,
1: yeah, I mean it's interesting. It's 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 a system that in the late 20th century, investment banks adopted um, to control risk. um, That each house, each branch has its own operations of risk analysis. You know, it emanated from the fact that he thought, as he's sending his sons to those far places in Japan, in China, in India, um, in Indonesia, how they're going to make decisions and take risk and understand risk if every time they lose money, well, the father is paying. Every time they make money, the father is benefiting. So he wanted them to understand, to be really entrepreneur and learn risk reward ratios. From that point of view, and also given the fact that a, an average message took three to five weeks, you know, if you're stuck in Kyoto in Japan and you want to ask about should I buy by the time the letter goes and the letter comes back, two months have passed, the opportunity has gone. Um, so they learn to do it. The downside of it, um is that there was sometimes too much competition between the brothers and the branches because everyone is saying, well, I made more profit than the others. So it had its downside, but definitely it taught the sons to be uh, uh, more risk-oriented.
0: Yeah, and we'll get to the part that it played in the decline uh, of the company. Okay, so that's really the, the company, and it really had explosive growth. It really became this massive Empire, as you say. Now, I think we should, you know, just just uh, David at the end of David's life. You know, just talk about that, and then kind of what happened subsequently when he died to the company.
1: Yeah, so that it's really an interesting aspect. Um, in 1864, he died. Uh, most of the last few years before his death, his son Elias was still in China running the business. Um, Abdullah, his oldest son, was close to him in Bombay and kind of the two of them running the business. He died in 1864. He left a will, which was very clear that Abdullah becomes the new chairman. The second son, Elias, refused to abide by this edict said, look, I went to China, I have been spending five, six years. you have to understand, Elias really suffered. He was also, like his father, very religious. So you can imagine traveling in all those places in China, not knowing the language, needing to keep kosher, um, in the middle of nowhere where you don't know the language. And he really suffered as a result. So he thought this is not a fair uh, a set, uh, system, and it should be 50-50. Negotiations followed, failed, and uh, three years later, in eighteen sixty-seven, we have from that point on until the end two competing companies, both carrying the name Sassoon, David Sassoon and Co. and E.D. Sassoon and Co. And the competition in the beginning propped both sides to be more innovative, uh, taking more risk, bringing more initiatives. Um, But I argue in the book that towards the end, you know, it was definitely one of the reasons that weakened uh, the dynasty, because it was too early for such a split to take place. And a lot of energy was spent. And unfortunately, Abdullah um, and 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 his brother never exchanged or met uh, after 1867. Yeah, very unfortunate uh, circumstances. But
0: uh, something I don't know if there's a way. If there's a number of this, I don't recall from the book. You know, we're trying to tell the listeners how how massive this empire was and how powerful this family was at the height. Um, is there like a number, some way to give some sort of barometer of how much? Sure, worth?
1: sure. So when people say, I tell them this is the most remarkable thing. Look, there is no high tech. This is not Google or or Microsoft. Um, but in 1864, his estate, if you take it in today's dollars, it's about five billion dollars. Now think about this. He started with nothing thirty years before, and again. This is, he didn't create the internet or, or some computer. There was no such a thing. And he really, if you look at the archives and the newspaper, he is nowhere in the 1840s. You know, while other traders buying tea and opium and silks in hundreds of chests, he would acquire one chest, sell two chests. I mean, it was a joke, really. You would never put your money on, on a guy like that to be so successful.
0: Now, was that the height in 64, in, in or did the sons really grow it even, even? No,
1: I mean, at some point, I'll give you another number. It, 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 the great-grandson of David Sassoon in 1926 left China and decided to go to China and and be in the real estate business he took with him 80 million US dollars circa 1926 i mean we're talking about zillions in 11 years the, the the real estate tripled in shanghai and so by 1935 36 fortune magazine put him as the sixth wealthiest man in the world
0: wow which obviously fell apart later on when the economy uh, commun- fell apart
1: because then uh invasion of Shanghai and then World War II and then the uh, Chinese Civil war between the national Communists and the final stroke is the rise of uh, the takeover of the Communist uh, of China in China in 1949 and the nationalization of all foreign assets so by then he had seventeen large buildings in Shanghai. Wow.
0: Okay, I want to jump back before we get there. Yeah, but that's a really you know interesting and sad part of the story at the end. But uh, so Abdullah, you mentioned he takes over and and Elias takes over the ED. So there's, there's kind of two competing companies. Uh, how is Abdullah's management of the company and how does that uh, go
1: on? Very similar to his father. A lot of micromanagement. Very hard worker. But as time goes by he's more and more attracted to move to london he convinces himself that you know this is the epicenter of the finances and a company like him should be there um even before he moved uh, uh, to london he was knighted so he changed his name and and by the way he was the first jew also to be accepted to the Guild of the City of London, which was a huge honor. So in 1872, he becomes Sir Albert. In 1873-74, he moves to London and receives that uh, a great honor. And before his death, he also get appointed as a baron. Wow.
0: And and to be clear, one of the sons, Estes Sassoon, I think, had already been in London for a while. He was the one they already Correct. had the state there.
1: Right? He's the one that his father sent in the 1850s and who managed to get a lot of information for them when the American Civil War broke out.
0: So Abdallah, even though he's involved and he's running the company, he does kind of get get involved in politics and the aristocratic, aristocratic uh, English uh, environment he kind of decides to he moves in those circles
1: yes i think it's very attractive to him and to his younger brothers who moved to england i think they were dazzled by this proximity to the royal family i mean you have to understand um queen victoria was the big, most important empress in 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 the world for a very long time, and here they are hobnobbing with her son and going into the royal palaces and and uh, you know spending evenings with the Prince of Wales. I think it almost got to their heads uh, a little bit, and I think that wanting to be at that upper echelon meant that you need to behave like them so they started losing their their baghdadi and jewish identity um they began to spend huge amounts on estates they started uh, doing things like hunting and shooting and horse riding which were totally strange for the original family and to even to albert
0: what is what's the uh... You know, we we mentioned how David was very you know staunchly religious, built many shuls and things like that in synagogues. What 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 happened gradually throughout as the generations you know went well, down? There were
1: some it. of so Elias was very religious. He had another son, uh, Suleiman, uh, who was married to Flora Farha, the first woman who was a CEO for global trading, and there is a whole chapter about her in the book, as the matriarch in real business terms. Um, He was also very religious. He actually, uh, Suleiman built his own synagogue behind his house, so he would, you know, uh, pray there every day before work and after work. Um, The others who became very Anglicized less and less as time went by. Flora was, so you really have a clear distinction between the first Two generations and the second the third and fourth generation
0: I, I do want to discuss Flora I mean she's very fascinating, as you said, the first woman in charge of like a, a global empire as well as like I said she she really remained religious from her children. I mean her grandchildren today are still rabbis they're the ones people are familiar with the, the Sfarim that they've printed. I'll mention Ramban or arambam they were the ones who published the manuscript they printed baiis on entire I mean they were
1: they were just their own manuscripts of a they were they were always
0: and still yeah, are of that part was- a family.
1: The Codex Sassoon, which is now, uh, I just was in Dallas where it was, um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I mean, you know, amazing. Uh, Her son bought it in in 1929. um, And uh, as you know, that is trying to sell it between 40 and 50 million US dollars.
0: Yeah, so that was really you know her her family and her. So, but let's talk about her, especially in business terms. Here, she really how does so who is she exactly? She's the granddaughter. Who is she, and how does she? She is the a Sassoon,
1: her? and her husband is a Sassoon. So, which is at the time, I mean, they were not first cousins; they were much closer. Um, but rabbis gave permission for that, um, and. Um, it was really not like an arranged marriage. She fell in love with uh, uh, her her husband and her husband, Suleyman, also. And they were real partnership. And as, uh, you know, by the late 1880s, um, the, the husband was not feeling well, was working too hard. And she started going to the office. Um, To to help him, which was unheard of. A woman coming to the office, um, Indian merchant said, What? Now we have to shake hands with a woman, uh, you know, unheard of. But she bulldozed her way. And then uh, her husband died, and she said, Okay, I'm ready to run the business. Now, Albert, who knew her very well, knew she was extremely capable. Uh, The other brothers were not that enthusiastic, so he said, okay, if you don't want, go back and run the business. But none of them was willing to leave London, so she ran it. And she ran it very successfully, introduced a lot of new systems, a modern business school uh, uh, analysis. And the more successful she was, the more um, angry and jealous the men in the family were. And sure enough, six years later, uh, they conspired and pushed her out.
0: Yeah, any failure, anything that happened, they blamed on her and they tried to really conspire behind to get rid of her. Uh, so at that point, she she that's when she kind of leaves India and, and she also goes to England
1: correct in 1901 she packs and leaves India and she goes to England um she decides she has nothing to do with the business she actually realized in one of the letters she says those guys you know are not really serious but I don't want to get involved in 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 family fighting she devotes herself to travel and studying the the Bible and given that her son had the biggest, he a, break a library in his house in London. Um, you know, she just lived for uh, the family and 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 for her uh, values.
0: Yeah, and as we said, so she and her descendants till today stayed religious, became rabbis, and they kind of left the business. Right, that was it for the her and her descendants. They were not involved. Totally. Right. Um, okay. So. What kind of happens after is going back to the company after Abdullah and his children and gradually as just kind of a pushback, especially in England with the church kind of to opium, the opium trade. And there's kind of this trying to shut down the opium trade.
1: Well, the opium trade, yes. So in 19, in 1895, uh, under religious pressure um, from missionaries who believed that if you stop opium trade to China, they can convert all the Chinese to Christianity Um, which was obviously a pipe dream. But uh, the British government created a commission of inquiry that went on for five years, published 2,500 pages, which are still used today as an incredible source about opium. And the committee reached a very important decision. All this hoo-ha about opium is exaggerated. Um, that we do not think it has either moral or physical damage to the soul if taken in in the right quantities. And in essence, what they said they said, opium should be treated like alcohol. If you ban opium, then ban alcohol. And of course, that put the kibosh on 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 uh, that matter. But then, World War. One, uh, you know, broke out and of course, all the governments around the world on both sides of the war had to uh, consolidate and take over because morphine was the most important aspect to treat all those uh, soldiers in the horrible uh, battles that were taking place. So what kind of happens uh, to the company? Well, the company continues. I mean, uh, under Flora, there were 16 mills of textiles in, in India. Um, as I said, there were now more investments in banks, um, in shipping companies, in uh, investments in sovereign bonds. The business continued. The issue to me is not the loss of the opium trade. The issue was the lack of drive and willingness to work hard and and think out of the box. Um, when Flora was pushed out, Albert's son took over. But here is an interesting thing: um, you know, he's 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 a member of Parliament also, so he has very little time. He has great name and prestige in England. But not a lot of savviness about the business. Then um, it it goes to another Sassoon, who basically was the chairman for 13 years, Philip Sassoon. But he has zero interest in the business. Um, he was more of an art connoisseur. He was the head of the National Gallery, and he was also a member of Parliament, deputy secretary uh, for the Air Force. Um, but zero business. So that that side of the business totally died, um, a, a slow death. The other one found in Victor Sassoon, who was the great grandson of Elias, a new life and, and a new energy with uh, the move to Shanghai um, and the building of a real estate empire, which I talked about before.
0: Yeah. I mean, interestingly, something about the book that's uh, interesting is that, first of all, the book is very readable. It's uh, like for a general public almost. And, and there's also um, there's a lot more, you know, of the family, you go more in depth in the book. And they, we talked about here. And each chapter is very nice. You give the, you know, years in the beginning of what the chapter is going to discuss. And then there's a kind of a family tree in the beginning on the first page of each chapter of who will be discussed in the chapter. So it's very, you can kind of, there's a lot of Sassoon's going on and similar names, but it's kind of, you can keep track for the reader. And
1: there are a lot of pictures.
0: Yes, a lot of pictures for the family, which is very interesting uh, to see as well. They, like you know, I, I mentioned, they became involved in uh, aristocracy and you, you do see that, you show them pictures of those lavish weddings and some of uh, who they they, they kind of married into in um, in Europe. Um, now, uh, another thing So, you you know, kind of the uh, one more thing I would mention about before we go to the E.D. Sassoon Co. and uh, Victor, but with David Sassoon, kind of the company kind of eventually, like you say, falls apart. Some of the descendants as well, um, not even are not religious. They even married non-Jews.
1: Yes. I mean, so what is really interesting, there was talent in the family, but not in business. And the combination of the total loss of identity. So there is the famous Siegfried Sassoon who is one of the most famous poets in World War I. And you ask any uh, school uh, child in England, they can recite for you from uh, uh, Siegfried Sassoon. But think about now they are called Siegfried, which is not David or Rachel or Elias um, or Abraham. And so everything has changed. Uh, there was Rachel uh, Bear Sassoon, who married out, but also she became a, a national editor of the largest newspaper in England. There was talent, but not in business, and definitely a loss of identity. Right, right.
0: Okay, now let's go back to Victor and the E.D. Sassoon. So even though the David Sassoon Co. was kind of falling apart, the
1: E.D. Sassoon is still going strong. Yeah, I think that the move, he he decided to move to Shanghai because he thought that there are tremendous opportunities, that Shanghai is the new Paris, and he proves part one to be right, where he didn't obviously anticipate is he did not anticipate the Japanese invasion of 1937 which started shaking the structure of all those uh, new empire. And then he didn't believe that Japan will enter World War II, proved to be totally wrong. Um, He uh, thought that Japan would never dare attack the US, proved wrong again. And so the combination of everything. And frankly, by 1945, the writing was on the wall that the nationalists might not hold and the communists might take over, but there were no buyers. I mean, I saw in correspondence his his desperation to sell even at 15 cents to the dollar. But who is the, you know, no one in their right mind would 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 buy under these circumstances and a civil war going on, which no one knew how it ends.
0: Yeah, it's kinda of sad sad at the end. I mean Victor's a colorful figure. Very
1: ends, colorful.
0: Yeah, and you talk about he ends up in the islands and uh married at the end of his life. Kind of uh, very colorful and there's pictures of him and discuss a lot about him. But it, it's kind of sad where the, the Victor Sassoon Company the ED's, you know, Sassoon Company goes and the David Sassoon Company, and, you know. It's 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 almost like it parallels uh the beginning and the end, where kind of the beginning is kind of this like you said, in 30 years, David Sassoon was five billion dollars in today's dollars. But then at the end, I mean, today they just end up nothing. This company is completely gone.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really the book is is two parts is the rise and it's the demise. And it's the rise because they understood all the changes that were taking place in the world. And the demise, paradoxically, is because they did not understand. The, the events that were taking place in the world. They did not really understand nationalism on the rise, that the British Empire is not the same empire at the end of World War I. But most importantly is the lack of drive, the lack of this hunger, the, the willingness to work hard, that all fizzled out. And that definitely uh, uh, can end any company in any era. I mean, is that what, you know, we
0: can take out of this story? Besides for being an interesting story of just to see this kind of rise and fall
1: of a global... Uh, yeah, I mean, empire. I think I think the moral of the story is two things. One, if you are, and, and I have been giving talks about intergenerational wealth for business people and business forums, I think that the the, the message is if you have a successful business, and you want to leave it to your children and not sell it, for example, remember, there was no such a thing at the time that, you know, private equities or others buying it out. Um, You have to think about who comes in the second generation. They didn't bring outsiders because they wanted to be only family. When they brought outsiders, it was too late. And second, The the moral of the story is that you have to figure out, you know, Abdullah was a great choice at the end of the day and run the business successfully. But Abdullah didn't do a good job in in leaving it to someone because he should have known that his son is more interested in British politics and high society than than the day-to-day business of trading and investing.
0: Uh, Absolutely. Um, Okay, so uh, I will link to the book. Like I said, the the book titled "The Sassoons: The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire," published by Pantheon Books. Is there other reading material um, that you? Because I saw that there's like a kind of a book slash. a catalog that, that Yale Press is publishing now, the Sassoons. I don't know if you saw this, that they're doing some sort of exhibit. No,
1: there is a, a very interesting exhibition at the Jewish Museum in New York on 92nd Street. In fact, I'm giving a talk next week there. Um, uh, the exhibition is really... I mean, it is fascinating because as, as one magazine in New York, town and country put it, it's the Sassoon season. They said first came the book Then an exhibition, and now you have a Bible, the Codex Sassoon, being in the pay. And May 17th is the auction of the Codex, um, which would be fascinating to see uh, uh, for how much is going to be sold.
0: Yeah, I assume the, the podcast will come out. After that, so if I'll add it on, I can see I'll add on a little uh, clip at the beginning. To tell listeners how much uh, it sold for. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yale Press, I like, in conjunction with the Jewish Museum, put out some sort of like a like a book uh, slash catalog about of the exhibit. And as you said, first came your book, then came that exhibit. And there's some sort of accompanying not a not a story like yours. It's kind uh, of has to do with the exhibit as well, which is uh, right. um, very interesting. And, and as I mentioned for listeners of the podcast, familiar. Many Svarim that people still use today, the new edition of Rambanarambam, Svarim of the Balitesis, were published by the family from manuscripts that they had. And so, you know, their kind of uh, legacy lives on that way as well. Um, so th- thank you, Professor Sassoon, uh, for thank joining Thank
1: you very much. Much appreciated.
0: And uh, good luck. Thank you.